I just want to join with uh, things that have been said of welcoming everyone online and here. It's so great to have uh, as many here as we do, and uh, we look forward to it growing in this uh, in this new year. Um, this uh, we're in the midst of winter, and uh, the winter cold has really hit. But um, for example, yesterday uh, there was a real warmth in this place and in the foyer, but it was not a physical warmth because the front doors were standing wide open to welcome people uh, that came for the community of hope. But there was a warmth of people serving them and uh, of the food that was being given uh, given out. Um, the community of hope continues such a, to be such an important ministry during all of this this time. And uh, I want to remind you that next week uh, there's going to be a focus on, on uh, that ministry uh, and uh, Carl uh, Garrison is going to be bringing his reflections. And then on Monday, um, following Sunday, uh, it's Martin Luther King Day and we have a day of service and uh, there will be a luncheon here as part of the ministry of the Community of Hope. If you can come and, and help with that, contact uh, Carl and, and participate in, uh, in all of that. I so much appreciated Jason's uh, prayer this morning and thinking about all of the things that are happening around uh, losses that people have suffered in our own congregation and, and also the things that are happening in the pandemic. Just, uh, I urge you to keep uh, praying for People, just the losses that have that have occurred, both in the sense of, of hospitalizations and all of that, but also the the um, the ways in which so many livelihoods have been uh, broken up, and where people thought that we were coming out of it, we find ourselves back in the midst of of the um, of the pandemic once again, and pray that the as some are predicting that this Omicron variant will indeed be milder than earlier variants and that others do not break upon us like a wave. Well, um, this morning, we are um, connecting back to the uh, series of messages that we, what we had on the Gospel of Luke, uh, a series that was, is entitled as a whole, Luke Anointed with God's Spirit. We, we've been uh, in this through a lot of last year, and we continued it down to the time of the beginning of the Advent season uh, last year, uh, which began just after, after Thanksgiving. If you go back to uh, November the 21st of last year, which is available on YouTube, you go, just go to YouTube and search for Manhattan Church of Christ, and you can find it there. And um, not that I'm particularly wanting you to listen to my sermon, but to go back to the, to the reflections that we were engaged in at that time, because we were in the midst of talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. It's the section of, of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 49. Now that's just 29 verses. That's not a very long passage. It's not nearly as long as the Sermon on the Mount which is uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and it covers three chapters, chapters 5 through 7. Um, but it is concentrated and is important. It is still Luke's summary of Jesus' teaching in a concentrated and really an, a, an amazing statement 
of the life into which Jesus is calling his disciples. And that means the life that he's calling us into. That's what this church is about. That's what every assembly of this church is about. Namely, being disciples of Jesus. And that's what makes a text like this, like the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount, which, of course, we took a text from last Sunday for the first Sunday of the year. It's what makes it so exquisitely important. As a community, we aim to be learners. That's what the word disciple means, to be followers of Jesus. And that's because... <laughs> Well, so many reasons, but especially it's because of Jesus. It's because Jesus is this truly astonishing person who in a particular time, in a particular place, a backward part of the Roman Empire, nevertheless brought God's reality, God's person into our world. And he continues now, every day, to bring our lives into the life of God, into the eternal life, into the beautiful life of God, through his crucifixion and resurrection, as well as all that he taught. And so now, as we're returning back to Luke's, Luke's narrative, I want to, to remind all of us a little bit about that Sermon on the Plain, just how extraordinary and how challenging Jesus' words are. Our text today begins in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 39, as you heard it uh, read by Keith uh, just a moment ago, so beautifully for us. And it overlaps several verses with the, the, the section that we looked at on November the 21st, as you go back there. And I want to read again some of those remarkable statements of Jesus that come just before our text for today. You can look them up in the Bibles there that are on your, uh, on your pew. Uh, breakdowns of technology uh, stop the printing of the, of the notes for today, but uh, they are available online, so you'll be able to get them. Um, but this is just before the text that we're going to be looking at. And just remember what Jesus was talking about when he gets into the kinds of statements that he makes in our text for today. What he's calling us to do, what he's telling us. So I'm going to read, not, not exactly all of it, I'm going to shorten it just a little bit, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 31 and 35 to 38. I'm telling you who are listening, Jesus said. That language comes up again at the end of our text. Love your enemies. Treat graciously those who hate you. Pronounce a blessing on those who curse you. Pray on behalf of those who treat you despicably. To one who hits you on the cheek, and I just so wish Jesus had pointed to somebody else, but he points directly to each listener. To the one who hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your coat, don't stop them from taking your shirt, too. To everyone who asks you, 
give. And from one who takes your things, <laughs> don't ask them back. And just as you want people to do for you, do that same for them. Then verse 35. Love your enemies, act for the good of others, and lend, expecting nothing back. Your reward will be great. You'll even be children of one most high. For he himself is really good toward those who are unthankful and evil. Become people of mercy, just as your Father also is merciful. So, stop judging, and you won't be judged. And stop pronouncing people guilty, and you won't be pronounced guilty. Pardon people freely, and you'll be granted pardon. Give and give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, spilling over the top. They'll deliver it right into your lap. For with the measure you're using to measure, it's going to be measured back to you. And then that's where our text for today begins. And I think it's obvious, at least I hope, that nothing's going to force me or you to be a real follower of Jesus doing these things from the heart. We can listen to these things and just say, wow, and then ignore them. We can ignore Jesus. We can reject Jesus outright. A lot of people in his own day and in every day right down to the present have done just exactly that. There have been also plenty of people who've tried to adapt him, to domesticate Jesus, to co-opt him and his teaching to their own views of the world, to their own understanding of themselves to what they consider to be the good life, or to support a cause that's dear to their hearts. Even a lot of Christian teaching and preaching falls into this kind of category of trying to kind of domesticate Jesus. In some ways, it's almost inevitable. Like Jesus says in our text today, you heard, so often we have logs sticking out of our own eyes that we ignore while criticizing with great precision the problems in other people's lives. That's what makes a sermon like this a problem. Because all of us stand in exactly the same relationship to Jesus. We each are called, I can't teach you Jesus. I can't teach myself. I have to listen to Jesus and let him guide. You also have to listen and try to see yourself, see your world, see your life through his eyes. The most sophisticated theologian who speaks the language of postmodern philosophy and is a master of sociological and political analyses of religion and intercultural critiques of church history and world religion is not necessarily an inch closer to Jesus than anyone in this room. Jesus' words are a river of vivid images and challenges 
and promises and a call to the transformation of life, a vision of the unity of our human life with the life of God. And it's a vision that so often seems utterly impossible to us. It's just been repeated throughout the course of interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain until we actually step inside of it in response to Jesus' call. Then it becomes the most obvious and beautiful thing in the world. And it's for everybody. The people in front of Jesus as he says these things are just ordinary people of ancient Galilee. They are not monks who are living in a monastery or something like that. They live in the area around. They may not be as well educated as many of us. The crowd is probably weighted toward people with real problems, especially physical problems that need healing. That's what drew a huge number of people to Jesus. Another major component of the crowd are perhaps religious teachers who actively oppose Jesus. That's something that Luke has told us about. Even the 12 apostles that Jesus has just named, just before this Sermon on the Plain begins, are typified by, as, as Luke narrates, by Simon Peter, who's a fisherman, not the most high-impact profession, whose first reaction to Jesus, Luke tells us, was to tell him to go away. I'm a sinful man, Peter said. And Jesus would agree. And he would agree for all the rest of us, too. Jesus does not idealize our situation. That's why in the second paragraph of what you heard uh, 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 Keith read in Luke uh, chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading all the way through here from my own uh, uh, translation uh, of this. In that second paragraph, Jesus draw, draws a rather unflattering picture of us, all with a, part of a tree sticking out of our eye. You know the story. Why is it that you notice the speck that's in the eye of your brother or sister? But that log that's in your own eye, that never crosses your mind. How can you bring yourself to say to your brother or sister, please allow me to take out that speck that's in your eye when you yourself don't notice the log in your own eye? You're acting a role. First, get that log out of your own eye. And then you'll see more clearly to remove the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Jesus does not idealize our sophistication or our clarity about ourselves or others. Remember, he made us. He knows our limits and especially our limited vision. His not too flattering word for all this is blindness. Notice the way that our text begins for today. Luke chapter 6 verses 39 and 40. Now he also spoke to them by parable. Is someone who's blind 
really able to guide another blind person along a path? Well, both of them fall into some hole. One who's learning as a disciple, disciple means to learn, isn't beyond their teacher. But when they're fully formed, each one will be like the teacher. Now that first part is just awful. In that context and in ours. It can be interpreted in different ways. Maybe it's the religious teachers who are blind gods. How could it not be when you've got a log sticking out of your eye? But those that they teach are also blind. Really? So none of us gets all free. We feel our way around without really intimately knowing God until we all fall into a hole. But what's remarkable in a sense, at least I, I think, and remarkable to me, is that Jesus says that, but he doesn't dwell on that blindness. He juxtaposes the picture of us sinful people as disciples, as learners, that mafe taste, disciple meaning, with a real teacher, one who knows real life, what real life is, not the deceived teachers who themselves are blind, but a real teacher who knows what real life, what God's life, what human life is all about, what it can be when it is, to use that phrase that Luke uses, it fully formed. This God, this teacher is unique. He's not just a helper who points us along the way and hopes that we'll go on beyond him and, and so forth. He is the very image and embodiment of both humanity and God. And he brings God's reality, God's kingdom, near to us, to us who are broken, sinful learners, so that formation can take place, so that transformation can happen. And as we go through that process, we don't go past them, as we talked about back in November. There, since this is the presence of God, there is no past God. We, though, in one of the most hopeful statements, shall we say, Jesus says they will become, each one will become like the teacher, like Jesus. Jesus' clarity about human weakness and struggle doesn't lead to a hopeless despair. In some ways, one of the most <clears throat> wonderful instructions in our text is when Jesus says, Get that log out of your own eye. He knows that a human being, you or me, is a creature of God with freedom to change. We can learn. We can grow. We can change. But that's also the challenge of Jesus. Being a disciple is not just mastering some set of rules, a philosophy of life. It is being with a teacher who embodies that life. It's becoming like that teacher, becoming like Jesus, 
or as Jesus put it, become people of mercy just as your Father also is merciful. Or as Jesus promises, you'll even be children of one most high, God's own children. So as Luke leads us toward the end of the Sermon on the Plain, he shows us how Jesus, and I think, sort of trusts us. He, he just piles up images for us to think about, metaphors for us to reflect on, counting on us to feel their sting, to recognize their challenge, and to use them in the process of being a disciple. And so it's that challenge that comes to us that Jesus just simply lays out that the, without giving a lot of interpretation, something for us to think about. We listen to Jesus and we engage. And it's in the engaging that the transformation begins even within ourselves. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, for an excellent tree, Jesus says, just doesn't produce a rotten fruit. And it's the same way a rotten tree doesn't produce an excellent fruit. Each tree, you know, is recognizable by its own distinct fruit. It's not from thorn bushes, of course, that people gather figs, and it's not from a bramble that they pick grapes. The good person, from the good treasure of their heart, brings forth what's good. And the corrupted person, from their corrupted stuff, brings out something corrupted. For it's from a heart's overflow that one's mouth speaks. Whew, these images are vivid. And they're certainly from everyday life. There's no special pattern there. Excellent trees and rotten trees, excellent fruit, rotten fruit, thorns and brambles and figs and grapes and so forth. The only clues that Jesus gives for the interpretation of the metaphors is their setting in this teaching, in the Sermon on the Plain, the call to life in Jesus' words that we've been listening to. Remember that, that what I read at the beginning from, from those verses that come before our text, how Jesus emphatically calls us to love enemies, to treat graciously those who hate you, to turn that other cheek, give and don't ask back. Do you remember? It's easy for those things to pass away from one's memory. When I read at the beginning from, from those verses that come before our text, how Jesus... I'm myself, don't I? It's pretty good. <laughs> Needed to be emphasized, I think. Or, or maybe it was the, the devil trying to get us to laugh at what Jesus is saying. I'm not sure, honestly. Um, the images are flexible, and they engage our minds. Maybe it's some teachers who were thought to be excellent, but they produce lives in their disciples that have a rotten core of hatred toward enemies. Maybe some teachers, like Jesus, who are called rotten, produce disciples with lives of excellence. So there's this kind of topsy-turvy. That can't be right. 
Jesus says. Those labels can't be right. Or perhaps it's the teaching. Maybe some teachings and practices that we've watched Jesus engage that are thought excellent because of their ideal of rigorous obedience to the law, like keeping the Sabbath day and thus not healing a person on the Sabbath day, are shown to have rotten fruit because they block off real love toward that person. Or maybe ideals of purity that are thought excellent lead to the rotten fruit of separation from people who are impure. Remember Jesus reaching out to touch the leper. Or sinners like the tax collectors. Or people who are different from me and despise. Look for where you find figs of mercy, generosity, and rejection of possessiveness, Jesus says. Where you find the grapes of genuine love, both for those in close community with you and those outside and alien and ungrateful and even enemy. Jesus knows the way to produce a genuinely beautiful life is to create a genuinely good, beautiful heart. Out of that, that heart, the treasures of the heart, as Jesus calls it, those core thoughts and feelings, those values, that identity of the person. That's what almost all of Jesus' guidance in many ways focuses on. Jesus wants to open our eyes to see God and ourselves and thus to see the whole world and all the structures around us in a new way, in a new relationship that he embodies. Jesus does not call us to what we might call a static authenticity. Authenticity is an important word, a big big word uh, today and has been for a long time. The idea of that that you need to be authentic, and that's, that's a positive word. But often it is isn't simply, the reason I add the word static to it is because it often it's simply, you are who you are. So just be yourself. Don't let anybody change you. And there are lots of influencers out in our world, and with by far most of them, that's really good advice. They're just, another version of me. They're broken humans, blind in many ways, with a log in their own eye. But Jesus is different. He lives within and embodies that self-giving love of God that changes the way the whole world and all of its interactions look. That love of God that flows from the foundation of all reality in God. And he calls me not only to change, but to see and become the child of the Most High. The the child that God made me to be. He calls me to practices that deepen, that enrich, that beautify my life while giving me the vision to deal with suffering and failures and betrayals of life. So that it incorporates everything of Jesus' life all the way through his crucifixion and resurrection and beyond into the life of all of his disciples. He calls us not to a static authenticity of just being myself, 
but to authentic transformation toward the image of God that is who he created us to be. We were to be the image bearers of God. We humans were made for freedom to grow and to change, even to reach beyond any vision that we now have of ourselves. Who you are authentically is actually better known by the one who created you than by you yourself. And so as Luke takes us, draws us toward the end of Jesus' sermon the plain, he tells us how Jesus uses a well-known parable about the building of a house, which he evidently told on multiple occasions. You have a version that's there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and a somewhat different telling of it here at the end of the Sermon on the Plain to challenge the very crowds of listeners. Chapter 6 of Luke, verses 46 to 49. Why are you calling to me, Lord, Lord, and you're not doing what I'm telling you? Everyone who comes to me and listens to my words and does them, I'll give you a picture of what they're like. Think of a person building a house. This person excavated and dug deep and laid a foundation on the bedrock. Now, when a flood came, the river crashed into that house, but it wasn't strong enough to shake the house because it was excellently constructed. But the one who's been listening without doing anything is like a person who's built a house directly on the earth without a foundation. Well, when that river crashed into it, the house collapsed immediately, and it became a total ruin. People came to Jesus for amazing things. They came for healing. They came to listen to him. And yes, Jesus physically healed so many of them. People were certainly willing to call out to Jesus as Lord, Lord, when there was a healing at stake, and for other reasons as well. They knew that this was the power of God. So even though Jesus had no wealth or political position or structure of power or an army behind him, they called him Lord, like the emperor, or even like God. But Jesus wants for them more than just the physical healing that he graciously gives them. He wants the deep healing of that authentic transformation that we were just talking about. He wants for every one of them and us, everyone, as he looks out over that crowd from merchant to slave, from Pharisee to tax collector, to fisherman to lepers, he wants them all to know the beautiful, strong, whole life that comes from living within God's kingdom, living Jesus' work. Now notice that when Jesus talks about this, why do you call me, why are you calling me Lord, Lord, and you're not doing what I'm telling you? It's easy to read that as though Jesus were giving a set of rules to follow and you have to obey those rules. But Jesus doesn't say, obey my word. 
acts as though he were giving them the law. He says to do them, to implement them, to bring them to full expression in your life. They're not just, they're not a law code. They're the design of a beautiful house. You can admire the design, but you only get to live in the house that you really built. You have to build a house. And you have to know, as Jesus emphasizes, that's the emphasis of the old story is, as it's here, that the heart of the design of this great house is not in the exterior decorations. Those can be imitated. This house of the life of a disciple, this house of the life of a disciple in God's life, in God's kingdom, this house of life in you has to be founded on the authentic transformation of laying a foundation in the rock, as we read about it from Deuteronomy, the bedrock of God's reality, God's self-giving love, God's love so gracious and deep that it can even overflow in God taking on your my sin and death in Jesus' crucifixion and in creating new life for you and me in Jesus' resurrection and in the Holy Spirit. So remember what Jesus says? Think of a person building a house. This person excavated and dug deep. Notice those words that Jesus chooses. And laid a foundation on the bedrock. Now, when a flood came, the river crashed into that house, but it wasn't strong enough to shake the house because it was excellently constructed. Kalos. You can, should I say this? It's almost heretical. You can do it. Notice that Jesus doesn't shy away from emphasizing images that emphasize the work that we need to do. He excavated, he dug deep, he laid the foundation on the bedrock of Jesus. He didn't create Jesus, he didn't make God, but he came to see Jesus, to realize God, God's love, God's life, and he builds a foundation, lays a foundation in that. Yes, floods come. Floods will come. The powerful river can take a thousand forms, and probably every one of us has experienced some form of it. Forms of injustice and violence, of loss of pride, loss of identity, of insult, of unjust suffering, failure, shame, and on and on it goes, of a pandemic. If your house is just sitting on the surface dirt and sand and mud of this world, Jesus says it's going to mm, wash away, no matter how we may wish to deny it. You've got to get down to bedrock, not to us, but to you and God, all of us side by side together in that process of coming face to face with God in 
Jesus. Your life matters. Yes, it matters to you. Of course it does. But you are also a beloved creature and child of that God who created you. That's what this whole story of the gospel is about. How do you find what's truly unshakable in life? Go back to the very beginning of the gospel when, when, when Luke is dedicating it to Theophilus. He says, I'm writing this to you, Theophilus, so that you'll know what is unshakable in the things that you've been taught. And here Jesus is taking us right to that, what it takes to have that unshakability in life. And it doesn't have to do with the stuff around us, but with the bedrock on which that whatever the stuff is that we have can have meaning, can have solidity, can be unshakable. You start by listening to Jesus. And listen again. And then doing it. <laughs> Loving my enemies. Ah. Giving when I can't expect it back. Ah. You implement. You bring it to realization. Building a life that is excellently, beautifully constructed rising from that solid foundation. And so the challenge, go back, read Jesus, read that Sermon on the Plain, read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, read the other teachings of Jesus, and start excavating, digging deep. Jesus is with you. The house will be beautiful and strong. Listen to Jesus and do. Amen.